so we will uh, be looking primarily at verses 17, the last half of 17 through 19. But once again, I'm going to read the, uh, the entire prayer beginning at verse 14, including the doxology in verses 20 and 21, uh, in order to uh, maintain the context. Paul writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who was able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, Paul reaches uh, the climax of his prayer here in, uh, in these verses, and we, uh, we stand amazed at uh, what he has done so far and recognize that uh, much of what he says is, uh, is really beyond our grasp. It's beyond our experience. It's beyond our understanding. But you are a God who nevertheless uh, brings it home to our hearts, uh, creates it within our lives so that it might be experienced, and all because you want to be glorified in and through us in this world. We pray, therefore, that we would turn our hearts now to, uh, to depend upon your Spirit's office as teacher, and that he would come and do that very thing for us this morning, so that we might understand, at least to some small degree, the greatness of what Paul prays here, that is ours in Christ Jesus. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Quite a few years ago, I, uh, I went uh, on a, a tour uh, through the, uh, the Glen Canyon Dam. Uh, Glen Canyon Dam is in uh, Page, Arizona. It's in the northwest corner uh, on the eastern end of uh, the uh, uh, Grand Canyon. And uh, they built a dam there. Uh, at a narrowing in the, uh, the canyon uh, on the Colorado River. It's the uh, second largest dam on the Colorado, uh, second only to, uh, to Boulder Dam. And uh, it backs up miles and miles and miles of, of water up into the canyon lands. Uh, it's called Lake Powell, but it's a, uh, it's a famous recreation area. People love to get into their great big boats, and they just go zooming for 30, 40 miles back into the canyons. And uh, it's just it's gorgeous, and it's beautiful. But the dam itself, for me, is just an astonishing uh, work. Uh, because when you, when you look at it, you just say, my word, this is really something. And on the tour, they give you the history of it and the dimensions of it and all that stuff. And, uh, I mean, this dam is, uh, is I, I, let me see if I remember, it's about 71 stories tall. It's over a quarter mile uh, long. And at the base... At the base, it's 300 feet thick. 
Well, I guess it has to be to hold all the water back that it, that it holds back. But what I found even more astonishing was that when they took us down into the turbine room, I expected, you know, the, 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 the thundering noise of millions and millions of gallons, cubic feet of, of water flowing through the turbines. It was quiet. Absolutely quiet. There was just this slight vibration that gave you the sense of the power that was at work. Because literally, it supplies, I think on average, I think 451 million watts supplies Phoenix and, uh, and other uh, uh, cities in that area. But it's astonishing that it's just so quiet. But isn't that like God's power in our life? You know, we, we want the jazz, we want to hear it, we want to feel it, but it is so quiet, and yet it is there. And that is what Paul's been, been covering, really, in his two prayers. The first one, you'll remember, in the end of chapter 1 is he wants us to understand that God's power is available to us. It is an astonishing power. The same power, he says, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now here in this prayer in the end of verse three, chapter 3, he wants us not just to, to grasp it and understand it, he wants us to experience it, to lay hold of it, so that it might have a real effect in our lives. You remember, so far in this, uh, this portion of the prayer, uh, Paul has been praying that, that we might be strengthened in the inner man, in that part of us that, is, that has been created to love Jesus Christ, that we might be strengthened in that part of ourselves because we are so easily tempted and drawn away by the devil. He is powerful. He is deceptive. He is subtle, tactful, crafty. And we need the Spirit of God to strengthen us so that we don't give in the way we are so prone to giving in. And he says, I want the Spirit to do that so that you might live by faith in Jesus Christ. That's really strange to me. Because we, we always live by faith in Jesus Christ to some degree now that we're Christian. But, but he wants something more. He's really saying to people who are already Christian, I want you to have an ever-increasing intimacy with Christ as person, as a divine person, your God, your Savior, your Redeemer, in a way that strengthens and encourages and causes you to rejoice more than anything else in this world. And now he comes to the high point of the prayer because that's not where he wants it to end. He says, I want those things to happen. I want you to be strengthened. I want you to have this ever-increasing intimacy with Jesus Christ so that you might know that the spiritual change comes from the power that resides in you precisely because of the love of God towards you and Jesus Christ. We always look for power somewhere else, right? We, we, it's, it's sort of like an appendage. We, we, we think that you reach out and you kind of grab it and you got the power. But that's not where Paul's going at all. What Paul's saying is that there's power in God's love for you. That's where the power resides. And in your response to that power... 
is where you see it take place and actually exercised. So Paul develops his thought this way. He begins by reminding us in the end of verse 17 that we are already rooted and grounded in love. This is so, he says, that we might be able to comprehend an ever-increasing sense of the greatness of God's love for us in Christ. What he calls the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth. Then he finally says, comprehending this love produces a power that changes our lives. So that's the way we're going to proceed because that's the way Paul proceeds. And so we begin now by looking at what it means for us to be rooted and grounded in love. It really is our position as believers right from the get-go. Once you are born again into God's kingdom, you are rooted and grounded in love. Now, rooted and grounded really um, seem like strange analogies. They, They don't seem to go together very well. But they do have something in common. And that is that um, out of each of them, something rises up, right? If, if something is well-rooted, a plant or a tree or something else rises up. And if something has a good, solid foundation, a building or whatever else it might be, rises up. What Paul is saying is that you have been rooted, you have been grounded in this, in this foundational love of Jesus Christ for you, and it is out of that that you grow spiritually. And because we are rooted and grounded in love, he says we are able to comprehend the ever-increasing love of God for us. It was really interesting. Someone asked Louis Armstrong, the great jazz trumpeter once, uh, what, uh, what jazz was all about. You know, could you explain it to me? <laughs> and he says, man, he says, if I've got to explain it to you, you don't have it. And, and that's really what, what Paul says here. If, if we don't understand the very basics of being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, if we don't understand what it means to have our sins forgiven and to have our hearts glad for that, we don't even have the rudimentary beginnings to understand what he's going to be talking about and where he wants to take us. Now, what makes us rooted and grounded is the fact that God has done this by his Holy Spirit. And he begins at regeneration, when he causes this inner man to be created within us. But then one of the first things he begins to do is produce this likeness to Jesus Christ. And he does that through what Paul calls in Galatians, producing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And love is the first fruit of the Spirit. And so what Paul is saying here is that what God does is in causing us to be born again, he takes this inner man and he begins to make this inner man more and more like our Savior. And one of the very first things he produces in us is the capacity to love others as we have been loved by him. In other words, receiving God's love produces the same kind of love. That's why I love John Piper's definition of love. He says, love is the overflow of joy in God that what? It gladly meets the needs of others. That is, when you know God's love for you, loving other people is easy. It comes naturally. 
And it's certainly what God wants for us, because the scriptures talk about it in lots of different places. For instance, in John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And Peter writes in his first epistle, in the first chapter, verse 22, he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. In other words, God is commanding us to love on the basis of the fact that he's given us the capacity to love by loving us first. That's what John says, right, in 1 John 4 that we read. We love, why? Because he first loved us. It is God's supreme desire that we love one another, that we treat one another with dignity and respect and honor. And when we have received this love so freely from God, it causes us to to want to serve and to want to sacrifice for others. It's just, it's natural. I read a great analogy that said that, um, that for the Christian, loving is like breathing. Right? You don't have to be told to breathe. It comes naturally, effortlessly. And that is the way loving others is for the Christian. But it also made this point, and I think this is really wise, that if you don't love somebody else, it is willful. It is deliberate. Just like holding your breath. Right? Holding your breath is unnatural. It goes against every impulse of your lungs. Your lungs want to explode after a while. So is being an unloving Christian. It's unnatural. It has to be deliberate. It has to be conscious. So although it's unnatural for the Christian, it is still possible. It is quite possible. You have to remember that the fruit of the Spirit being love is agape love. And agape love is a love of the will. It's not eros. It's not not phileo. Okay? It's not not the, the romantic love. It's not the love of friendship. It is the deliberate, conscious determination and decision to love someone else. To treat them properly. But we can violate that. So you don't fall in or out of agape love because, and precisely because, it's not an emotional thing. It is a determination of the will. And so, for instance, when a husband doesn't love his wife the way he ought to love his wife, or his wife doesn't love him the way she ought to love him, the issue is not the other person. It's never the other person. It is always here. It is always the fact that the will has determined, I will not do this. And therein lies our sin. So whether it's strange relationships between husbands and wives or brothers and sisters or workers or friends, the issue is never one of of being incompatible, right? It's never one of personality conflict. It's a lack of graciousness in me. 
it is a is it is it is an unwillingness to love. It is a holding of my breath against someone else. And this ought never to be. Because we have so freely received the love of Christ for us. And we are to be vessels. We are to be channels of that very same love to others. Well, next Paul says that our being securely rooted in God's love is so that we can comprehend how vast God's love is for us. He says, what is the length and the breadth and the height and the depth? And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Several hundred miles off the coast of Guam in the Pacific Ocean is the Mariana Trench. It's the deepest place in the, uh, on, on earth. Seven miles deep. Seven miles deep. I mean, there is no sunshine down there. It is pitch black. It is, if you can imagine this, eight tons per square inch pressure. Eight tons. Now, you just lay out your hand. I figure most hands are probably, what, say, three by six. That's 18 square inches times eight tons. That is a lot of weight just on your hand. So you, get to, you begin to imagine what it's like down there. Well, you know there's life down there? Isn't that astonishing? These two guys, Jacques Picard and Donald Walsh, climbed into this little bell sphere in, uh, in January of 1960. And they went down there. They're the only people who ever have. Nobody wants to go there. But they did. They set a record, but they saw fish. These well, you can, ex- you can understand they were flatfish. <laughs> but, they, but they lived there. I mean, it, it, it staggers the mind. There's no light. There's pressure like this. And yet there's life. There's, there's, there's stuff going on down there. Now, I, I, I don't understand that, how that is. I don't understand the, the, the tiny little particles inside of atoms and, and molecules. I, I don't understand the expanse of space, galaxies and, and, and celestial walls and all these other things that are out there. And in the same way, I don't understand, and I, I think Paul is, is, is really he's struggling for language here about how to communicate the love of God. I mean, he chooses specific words. He says, width and length and height and depth. This, this love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. I mean, did you p- pick that up? We are to know the love of Christ which actually surpasses our ability to know it. Well, I mean, basically he's saying, I, I want you to try and catch some kind of glimpse of what it means that God should love us so much. I remember, and as I, I'm sure some of you do, uh, I think it's probably around 1980, Dr. Roger Nicole of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary preached uh, four sermons at a college church, one sermon each week on one of these words. The first week was on length, and then the second week was on breadth, and then the height and the depth. And for four weeks, this man waxed eloquent. He was a professor of theology. He had it all up here. He was French. I mean, it was just, it was fantastic. It was like, wow. And I was so astonished by what he was able to was he, talk about the love of Christ for four weeks. On four words? 
And yet, in many respects, he was just giving us a glimpse too. It was just the tiniest little opening. And that's what Paul is trying to do with these words. He says there's no way we can really grasp it. But somehow, just to have our souls apprehend it in the slightest degree should cause us to understand how extraordinary it is that God should love us so. Now, there are lots of reasons, I suppose, that it's hard for us to grasp such love for us. But one of them is clearly our human tendency to measure God's love by our own experience. You know, it's the picking daisy kind of thing, right? He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And we do that, what, on the basis of, well, how things are going. (laughs) Things are going well, he loves me. Things are going not so well, he loves me not. And so we're adding on the one hand or subtracting from his love on the other. And just most of us are at least hoping it'll balance out. What does that do? That absolutely erodes our confidence, our assurance that the love of God given to us in his promises are true and unswerving. They never change. His love for us never, it doesn't vacillate a bit. And it is this very love of God that you and I hold on to in those, in those moments of disasters, in those, in those times of great trials, when we, when we don't know where else to go, when we can't even pray. It is that love that we trust continues to hold us. And that as hard as it is for us to feel it or experience it, or even believe it at the moment, somehow God has placed within us that that certainty that it will never let us go. Well, Paul comes down in uh, verse 19. He says, I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, that's what all this is leading up to. Right? It's not just that he wants us to be strengthened. It's not just that he wants us to to have Christ dwelling in our hearts, have this intimate relationship with him. It's not just that he wants us to apprehend, to understand better, this, this great, magnificent, vast love of God for us. No, he wants something even more. He says, I want you to be filled up to all fullness of God. There was a Christian who was dying, and, and, and he, he said this. He said, I shall be satisfied if I can but creep into heaven on my hands and knees. Now, most of us, you know, we, we can understand that sentiment, can't we? We recognize we've done a pretty slovenly task in this world, and, and we're happy to get in by the skin of our teeth. All right? Smoke coming off our clothes? Okay, just get me in. But you know, Paul, Paul thinks just the opposite. When Paul talks about the Christian life, and he talks about going home, he's always talking about it in grand terms. He uses words like wealth and riches and abundance, and and here he's praying that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. 
In other words, Paul wasn't, wasn't satisfied with sort of your basic entrance into heaven. No, he desired that he and all of his converts, and that includes us, should have the fullest experience of the Christian life while we're here in a grand and glorious entrance into heaven, into the presence of our Savior. In other words, Paul is basically saying that this is really what ought to be true of the Christian life. That there's a, there's a fullness, there's a depth, there's a richness to it that each one of us ought to know. Now, I don't know how your particular translation handles uh, this, this phrase, but Paul prays that we might be filled to the fullness of God, not with the fullness of God, but to the fullness of God. And what that means is that, that God's communicable attributes... Attributes such as his love, his wisdom, his perfection, his blessedness. That those things might be poured into us so far as we are able to contain it. In other words, as much as we can possibly be like Jesus in this world, that's what Paul is praying. And that's astonishing because that is precisely where the power to resist sin and temptation that he talked about a few weeks ago comes from our being like our Savior. And even though it will never be complete until we get to heaven, still God continues to pour into us so much as we can contain it these great, wonderful attributes. Now what does it look like? Well, when, when you look at the term to fill up in the, uh, in the rest of the New Testament, what you find are phrases like this. Filled with rage. Well, what is it when you're filled with rage? Well, you're totally dominated by it. And when you're filled with happiness, what are you? Well, you're totally dominated by happiness. And what Paul is saying here is that to be filled up with the fullness of God is to be so totally dominated and filled with his divine communicable attributes that we we become like him, more and more. And as a matter of fact, three times in the book of Ephesians, he uses these very same terms. Here, he talks about being filled up to the fullness of God. In 4.13, it's the fullness of Christ. And in 5.18, he's talking about being full of the Spirit. This is consistent for him. So in summary, Paul is really praying, praying, praying throughout this entire prayer that we might be so aware of and happy in the love of God for us in Christ that his character both fills and dominates our lives. And that's, that's when we have power to live the Christian life as he wants us to live it. Now we begin to see what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where our passions, right, are connected to divine power. Remember, we always do what we want to do. We do what we want to do most. Even if it looks untenable or, uh, or undesirable, it's always better than the alternative. We always do what we want to do. 
that what Paul basically says in this prayer is this. That when the love of Christ, and the love of God in Christ comes to us, and we respond to it, there is a great joy, and there is a freedom, and there is a, a willingness to do what God wants us to do, not out of a debtor's ethic, not because somehow we feel like we have to pay him back, but because we are so delighted and so filled with joy that it becomes the very thing we want to do. We want to love others. We want to serve others. Sacrifice? What sacrifice? I never made a sacrifice. That's the kind of progression that Paul is saying can take place in each of our lives. That's how we can understand what Paul or what uh, Jesus says in John 14, 21. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Right? If, you, if you really love me, if you're really responding to my love, you're going to do these things freely, joyfully, because you want to. Because the heart, the spirit-filled heart that is full of love for God and for others doesn't find them burdensome, but finds its actual joy in obedience. As a matter of fact, it's one of the things that undergirds Paul's structure in his epistles. Because this is what he commonly does, isn't it? In the first half of the epistle, what does he do? He lays out the greatness and the grandeur and the glory and the love and the mercy and the kindness of God to us. In other words, he shows us God's love. Why? To stimulate in our own hearts a response of love. Why? Because out of that response of love comes this willingness to then do the things that Paul lays out. The duties and the obligations and the other things that he lays out in the second half of his epistles. It's not just truth and life. Of course, that's one way of dividing it up. But we might say it's love and my response to love. My free response to love. I do it because I want to do it. It's natural. It's easy. That gives us a better sense, I think, of what the means of grace are all about. Why do, we, why do we read our Bibles in the morning? Why do we pray? Why do we come for worship on a Sunday together? It is to bask in the love of God for us so that our own loving response to him and to one another might be stimulated, deepened, and broadened. So when we understand how secure and how great and how wonderful God's love is for us, it does have power to combat sin and temptation. But it does it not by somehow picking up something that's external to us, but by the heartfelt response to Jesus Christ's love for us. It just says... Of course I want to obey. Of course I want to obey. 
Once there was a man who spent a lot of his spare time planting trees, you know, small trees, young trees. And uh, um, his friend noticed that uh, he almost never watered them after he put them in the ground. And he thought that was, that was wrong. He questioned his friend. He says, well, you know, wh- why do you do that? And the guy said, well, I'm from uh, the no pain, no gain uh, school of planting. <laughs> and, and his friend said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, he said, you know, if, if, if you water it, it doesn't have to send its roots down deep. He says it's, it's got all the moisture it wants because you keep giving it to it. But if you don't do that, it is forced to send its roots deep to make sure that it finds the moisture that it needs. So that when tough times come, the tree stands. Over 25 years later, all of his trees were still standing. All of them were healthy and strong and vital. Now, all of that makes me think about the way I, I pray for other people. And for a long time, I've been, um, you know, I, I, I've done what many people do. I've been inclined to pray that God would spare my family, um, you know, uh, problems and indignities and, you know, all, all manner of other things and hardships. Uh, and, and I pray the same thing for you. But I have to admit that over the years I've been changing and, and studying this passage almost just has cut that kind of praying right out. So I'm not praying for your blessing anymore. At least not circumstantially. I'm not, I'm not against praying that. But my primary prayer for you is that you would send your roots down deep, deep into the love of Christ for you. So that when, so that no matter what circumstances come, you'll be able to stand against them. You'll be able to weather them. You'll be able to endure them in a manner that is gracious and beautiful and Christ-like, Christ-honoring. And I would encourage you to pray the same way for others and for yourselves. For we all need it. We all so quickly and easily fall away. Christ holds us and reminds us through passages like this. This is his desire for us. And lest you think it's impossible, lo and behold, we'll visit Paul's doxology next week, which will convince us all that it ain't so. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we are so grateful that these things are not impossible for us. We are so grateful that your power is at work, your purposes will be accomplished Your desire for us, your original design for us, will be fulfilled. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are gracious and loving. And we thank you that in these we find the great hope and assurance that what you have said in Scripture about our one day coming into your presence with fullness of joy and finding pleasures at your right hand forever will be our experience. But until that day, we are still to seek and to live full, rich, meaningful Christian lives here.
Teach us, Lord, what more abundant Christian life is like. But teach us properly that we might know it first and foremost as our response to your great, magnanimous, undeserved, vast love in Jesus Christ for us. For we ask these things in his name. Amen.